Welcome back to the Hang Time Podcast. I am NBA.com's John Schumann. I am here with uh, my man Sean Powell. We are in San Francisco getting ready for Game 3 of the Finals on Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern ABC. The Finals are tied 1-1 after the Warriors uh, picked up a sort of escaped with a Game 2 win on Sunday thanks to Andre Iguodala's dagger three-pointer. After a little bit of a hesitation, uh, a little bit of a scramble on that Warriors possession, an incredible play by Sean Livingston. But we go into game three with some questions about the Warriors' health. Clay Thompson is questionable with a left hamstring strain that he suffered in game two. Kevon Looney is probably done for the series. He has a cartilage fracture in his rib cage. And we still don't know the status of Kevin Durant for game three. We're coming to you on Tuesday morning. From San Francisco, the Warriors have a practice and then a media availability Tuesday afternoon. Um, We assume that we'll get some news on Durant there. So stay tuned to NBA TV, NBA.com for that. They wanted to see him practice and their availability, the good news is their availability is first, which means it's after their practice. So hopefully we'll get some news on Durant with his calf issue. Sean, how concerning is the Clay Thompson injury? I don't know if we can really predict if he'll play in game three or not. We don't, you know, two of us are not doctors, obviously. We know Clay Thompson is a pretty tough dude, has, does, has, has never missed a playoff game, but obviously we're not inside his body. We're not inside that trainer's room to know just what his status is. All we know is that he's listed as questionable, and questionable, I believe, is like 50 50, I believe. So, Sean, what do you think of the Thompson injury, first of all? Well, hamstrings are tricky. Uh, you just don't know. Even the person who has the hamstring doesn't know. Obviously, the, the best scenario is rest. Of course, he doesn't have the luxury of rest other than a couple of days before the next game. Also, the thing about hamstrings is that it's tough for you to have the burst. I wouldn't be as concerned about Clay offensively, but then he's got to chase some players defensively. And the Raptors would know that. They would exploit that. Again, we're all speaking out of turn here. We don't know the severity. We don't know what he's going to be like by tip-off for uh, game three. So as far as us talking about the value to the Warriors, I think that's pretty obvious, uh, particularly with all the questions surrounding Kevin Durant still to this day. I guess there was a theory that could the Warriors win the championship without Durant, perhaps. But they're not winning this championship without Durant and Clay Thompson. That's just too much offense sitting on the bench. Yeah, down the stretch of game two, they basically had to go to Quinn Cook and, you know, a backcourt of Quinn Cook, Stephen Curry, along with Iguodala, Livingston. <laughs> and Draymond Green. It was a it was certainly a a makeshift uh lineup and then obviously if both of those guys are missing in game 3, that will be um a heck of a task to come up with the win given given what the rotation will look like. You know, obviously the good news is is that in in game 2, DeMarcus Cousins had was pretty good. Had a nice offensive game. I thought his defense was good enough. You know, it was maybe a little bit of issues as far as guarding pick and rolls. But, you know, I was working on some stuff, a, a film study story that's on the site now about Kawhi Leonard's offense. And in writing about that, you notice that DeMarcus Cousins' defense was pretty good. You know, in his just ability to stay in front, be big, you know, just being big is a factor defensively. And obviously that's a that's a positive 
thing going forward for for Golden State. You wrote on on Cousins too after Game Two. How much were you surprised, first of all, by how well he played, and and how much of a factor do you think that is going forward? Well, I'll I'll get I'll talk about his impact. Uh, first of all, when Looney goes down and probably won't play for the rest of the series, I think the Marcus Cousins minimizes that loss uh, because he can do everything that Kevon could do and more. Uh, again, we're assuming, of course, that there's a spillover effect with DeMarcus. You know, sometimes when you have a long layoff, yeah, you have a pretty good game, but you could also go in the tank. So I think for the Warriors' sake, I think they're hoping that DeMarcus only improves from here. The one thing I was really surprised about was how he gained confidence pretty much every five, ten minutes. And you could see with Steve Kerr, uh, Steve Kerr didn't think he would use him that much after only playing, what, uh, eight minutes game one when he was when Demarcus was just out of totally out of sync, unsure, uh, a little bit afraid to shoot the ball, wasn't aggressive, made bad passes. The things that you would probably expect from someone who's missed two months and all of a sudden he's thrown into the biggest fire of the NBA season, the NBA Finals. But I think he, in Game Two, his confidence came back because he did some good things right away. I think if he started off that game poorly, who knows how it would have developed. But he started doing some good things right away. He gained his confidence. He probably still doesn't have his win 100% completely, but he probably also doesn't need it because if he's going to guard Marcus Ole, Marcus Ole's not going to hustle up and down the floor. So w- without him having to spend that much uh, energy on defense trying to chase somebody, I think that is in his favor. Uh, I was impressed by his passing. Uh, he's always been a really good passer, uh, but he spotted his teammates for some important baskets. And what he did first, um, most of all, was he made the Raptors respect him. You know, suddenly the Raptors have to change their defensive philosophy. If there's another player on the floor who they have to, at some point, even double team, what does that do for Clay Thompson? What does that do for Seth Curry? What does that do for Quinn Cook? You know, what does it do for uh, Jurebko, you know, standing all alone in the corner for a three-point shot? What does it do for Iguodala? All those players, it's a ripple effect. So what you want to do is to have as many players on the floor that the defense has to respect because it opens the lanes for Curry. He doesn't see as many double teams. And it's just one more player you can go to. Of course, that's one more player you can go to without Kevin Durant on the floor. And that also makes it uh, that much more important. Yeah, I don't know if the the Raptors need to double team Cousins in the post, whether he's being defended by Marcus or Serge Ibaka. I, I think that probably puts their defense in a little bit too much of a scramble. I, I would trust those guys to play one on one. Post scoring is not the most efficient way to score. I think you got to sort of play him one on one at this point. Um, He'll probably get a couple buckets that way, but I I think he's shown us that he can he's willing and uh, able to pass out of a double team. He had six assists in 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 less than twenty eight minutes in game two. He also had five fouls in less than twenty eight minutes, and I, I think that's maybe the issue going forward is just can he stay out of foul trouble? Um, you know, with Looney out, you know, your other center options are Andrew Bogut, who who had a very very good seven minutes uh, in game two. And then maybe, you know, Jordan Bell, maybe uh, Jonas Jerebko playing the five or, or Draymond Green playing the five. Um, obviously, Durant coming back would open up there or would allow for more uh, of Draymond Green playing the five because then you could put Durant at the four, Iguodala at the three, and you're in, in pretty good shape that way. 
So Durant's status going forward, both for his scoring and his defense, but also for the the lineups that he can unlock is is obviously huge. You know, and we'll, like I said, we'll 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 know more about Durant's status. Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, and, and shoot, you know, one thing about Durant, if he comes back, I think defense is going to be his biggest problem for having such a long layoff. And again, having to chase players around, I think they have to hide him defensively. And it, it, it's strange we would have to say that because he played so well defensively before he got hurt. But to have the long layoff and to, you know, have to, I don't know who he would you know, Kawhi, somebody else that they would even think about putting him on. They kind of kind of hide him. Maybe put him on Marcus Ole, maybe put him on Ibaka, someone who's not going to run him his first game back. I think that that would be a major problem for the Warriors if suddenly they try to even think about assigning Durant to anyone who can score. Yeah, yeah, we'll see about that. I, I guess uh, I assume if if Durant was back and and yeah, I mean if if Tom, uh, we could start to play. Uh, lineup math here but like if if thompson is out do does Iguodala start in his place or do they go with quinn cook for more shooting that'll be uh, an interesting question um and and then who gets the uh the Kawhi leonard assignment obviously they're guarding Kawhi leonard with a crowd more than they're guarding Kawhi leonard with one individual and i think that's been an issue for toronto leonard is not the you know the most natural or willing passer and so you know, you throw a double team at him and he's sometimes wants to just dribble out of it and then see what he can get rather than immediately finding the open man. And and part of that size, like, you know, if you throw a double team at him with a big guy, it's harder to, for him to see out of that double team and see all four teammates. But part of that's just who he is. I, I just don't think he is like he's not certainly not LeBron-esque in his ability to to see that read the defense and find the open man right away and allow for, you know, the Raptors to get a quick shot. And so often when he's playing in a crowd, um, the clock winds down and the Raptors have been playing late in the clock a lot in this series. In game one, they shot a ridiculous 15 for 23 in the last six seconds of the shot clock. That was, I mean, and, and that included some crazy shots. That Siakam hook shot that hit off the glass, the Fred Van Vliet sort of last second chuck that hit off the glass and went in. Um, another Siakam pull up jumper that bounced around and went in. And so that 15 for 23 wasn't sustainable. And surely enough, the, the Raptors shot five for 20 in the last six seconds of the shot clock in game two. So the Raptors have taken 43 shots in the last six seconds of the shot clock. The Warriors have taken only 16. Part of it is, you know, the Raptors kind you know want to play a little bit more deliberate in this series, but you can't have you can't be you know putting so much pressure on your offense to score late in the clock like they have, and so I think they've got to find ways to sort of loosen Leonard up and and find ways to get him the ball either on the move or where Golden State can't double team him so quickly and so easily. What have you noticed on that end of the floor as far as how Toronto has has reacted to sort of all the attention that the Warriors are paying to, to Kawhi Leonard? Yeah, uh, you know, one thing about that stat, uh, I suspect one reason why the Warriors don't take a lot of shots. They, the shot clocks, but Steph Curry and Klay Thompson just fired up as soon as they're open. I mean, they, they, don't, <laughs> they don't even wait. So, uh, But as, as far as, look, I agree with everything you said about Kawhi uh, when the double comes his way. Uh, it's strange we're talking about that with a guy who spent much of his career in San Antonio where, you know, everybody on the floor knows how to pass. 
you know. Uh, so he was never that guy, you know. I mean, yeah. he had nine assists in one of the games in the conference finals, and that was a career high nine. If for a yeah. guy that 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 is as talented as he is and has the ball in his hands as much as he does and gets the attention of of every defense that that he's in front of, nine assists is his career high. That tells you about. Uh, I mean that. I mean that was a great game he had, but it also that night the fact that nine assists was his career high tells you a lot about his his playmaking willingness and and ability. Yeah, it, it's a flaw uh, in certain situations for sure. I don't know also how much of it is his ego. Maybe he feels that you know I'm a lot better than the options that I have. Who knows? He's right. Might be. <laughs> yeah. He's not wrong. What, yeah. Yeah. But regardless, uh, that's something that the Warriors are definitely going to continue to support. I think they just basically announced it from the first minute of the first game that Kawhi Leonard is not going to beat us. As simple as that. And we can go to sleep at night if Siakam's going to, you know, hit those big shots. We can go to sleep at night if someone's going to hit those, as long as they don't hit them, you know, when they're completely wide open. But they're not going to let Kawhi Leonard beat them. That's what Milwaukee did. They let Kawhi Leonard beat them. You know, that's what, you know, the other teams did in, in the Eastern Conference, in the Eastern Conference playoffs. They let Kawhi Leonard beat them. The Warriors aren't going to do that. They'll just take their chances. And I think they knew, and we all knew, that Pascal Siaka and Marcus Gasol aren't going to combine for 52 points, you know, for more than one game. Uh, they took their chance in game two, and it worked in their face, even though that game pretty much came down to last couple of possessions with Iguodala shooting that dagger. And by the way, why is Iguodala even hesitating in that situation? For the life of me, I just couldn't understand that. He's wide open, the game is on the line, and he's hesitating? What is he thinking of, trying to get rid of the ball? Is he afraid to shoot in that, certain, in that situation? And that's really been Iguodala's pattern for the last you know, few years. Here's a guy who, who one year averaged almost 20 points a game with Philadelphia 76ers, and suddenly he's just a reluctant shooter. But you can't be reluctant in that situation. Fortunately, the ball fell it through the hoop, and the Warriors came away with the win. And of course, and you also mentioned such an underrated play by Sean Livingston in that situation. First of all, he gets the ball ahead of Kawhi Leonard, and they don't call uh, Kawhi uh, claw for nothing. I was really surprised Kawhi didn't get that ball for uh, that kind of like a weak pass from Steph Curry out of the double team. And then Sean Livingston has the wherewithal, not only to find Iguodala, but he throws a no-look pass. <laughs> he throws everybody off. And that's one reason why Iguodala was so wide open. So such a great play by Sean Livingston, the, 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 the clever veteran and such a big situation. Well, you know, but that's the Warriors. I mean, they have players who have been here before and, and who don't shrink in the big moments. Yeah, I was watching. Uh, we were, you know, you and I were both uh, sort of in the corner behind the Raptors bench for that game, actually for both games one and two. So I didn't notice, I didn't realize how how close Kawhi Leonard was to that pass, I guess, um, until you see the TV replay. And the TV replay or the, the TV angle is like perfect. And so when you watch the TV angle, it's like you 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 can watch it 10 times and still not understand how Kawhi Leonard didn't catch that ball. It's uh it's different from the from that angle. I think with the Iguodala shot, it was a matter of there's still a lot of time left on the clock. So if he shoots and misses, the Raptors maybe four or five seconds to to shoot after they call a timeout and advance the ball. Whereas you know there was still four or five seconds left on the shot clock. So Warriors could have let that clock, the shot clock, run all the way down to to zero and then shot from half court 
as long as they got it up on the rim, the game may have expired. You know, the Raptors wanted to foul because they knew if the Warriors let the clock run all the way down and shot and missed and the rebound bounced around for a little bit, the Raptors weren't going to get a, a shot off. So I think that was maybe the hesitation, just the timing of the whole thing. But hey, give him credit. He made the shot and and that's that's all that matters. And as big of a drought as that was for the Warriors, I think it was about five minutes and 33 seconds or so, Toronto never had a chance to tie or take the lead. Um, and that was partly because of the the drought that the Raptors had at the start of the third quarter where they went 12 possessions um, without scoring. And that was a drought of 538. So maybe the difference in the game was the extra five seconds that the Raptors drought was versus the Warriors drought. But yeah, it's uh, maybe it's a, a missed opportunity for Toronto in game two. You know, we'll see what happens going forward with this series. But, you know, we thought, you know, they had a missed opportunity and in, in, in missed opportunities in, in the other series. And they they managed to to survive and, and keep going. I just think that, you know, obviously Golden State's a, a, another team. And, and as good as Toronto has been defensively, the Warriors just have weapons. And obviously one of them is Clay Thompson. And he hit some ridiculous shots in game two. Um, where he just had no space whatsoever, but still just has that high and quick release where he can get the shot off. And he just drained some big shots. And we've talked about Quinn Cook who just hit some some huge shots in that second half. Going forward, what Raptor is, are your eyes on sort of for game three? Is it Siakam again? You know, he shot poorly in game two after having that huge game in game one. Is it Kyle Lowry that needs to to step up? Um, does Paul, does, excuse me, Marc Gasol need to be quicker and more aggressive with his own offense? What do you think about Toronto? Just looking at game three, what is the most important thing for that team? Well, we really don't know yet because we don't know what kind of Warriors team is going to be on the floor. Let's take a worst case scenario for the Warriors where they don't have Clay Thompson and they don't have Kevin Durant. Well, you know, I'm thinking we're looking at Lowry, we're looking, we're looking at pretty much everybody who Clay Thompson usually guards, trying to take advantage of that situation. You know, Clay Thompson's defense, as we know, is, you know, top shelf. And if you take him off the floor, forget his offense for a second. Defensively, I think uh, the Warriors are suffer. I don't see Quinn Cook, you know, offering anywhere near the resistance that Clay Thompson does. And so, therefore, I, I take advantage of that situation right away. But uh, if he plays, then you know, look, Siakam's got to have a bounce back game, obviously. I don't think he's going to score 32 points again in a game in this series, but he's got to do a little bit better than what he did. Also, you, you also have to look at the players on the periphery, you know, the Fred Bland beats, uh, you know. And what about Green? I mean, he hasn't really had a signature moment throughout the playoffs. I mean, he's, his three-point shooting has been very poor, uh, and this would be the – you know, quite the steeping game for him to announce his arrival in the NBA Finals. You know, and finally, we haven't really talked about Kyle Lowry. Again, if you look at his playoff pattern, it's really been up and down. I can't recall if Kyle Lowry's ever had like a massive playoff moment in his career. I can think of a few lows, but I can't think of a massive playoff moment, you know, where he, you know, came in and just had a torrid fourth quarter or made a couple big shots down the stretch, or just did something to rescue his team. I know he had a couple of moments, you know, against the uh, against the Bucks, particularly when he stole the ball, you know, at half court, you know, made the layup. Uh, but I think he's going to need a couple more of those type of games against the uh, against the Warriors. And you know, and and also, look, 
if the rest of the series is going to be follow the pattern of the first two games, I mean, these games are decided by a couple plays here and there in the fourth quarter. These games, for the most part, have been pretty tight. You could have made a case for the Warriors actually winning game one, and you could have made a case for the Raptors, particularly with, with the Warriors going dry in the fourth quarter. You could have made a case for them possibly winning game two if a couple of things bounced their way. And what the Raptors have to do first and foremost is to show that sort of championship composure. Uh, to be able to make those plays that make a difference in the fourth quarter. We know the Warriors can do that. We know that the meat, the core of the Warriors, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Sean Livingston, Iguodala, those guys have been there and done that, and they don't really get flustered that much. I want to see a Raptors team come out, play a strong game, you know, make smart decisions, but also not necessarily get flustered uh, late in the fourth quarter and to be able to make the, the plays, you know, the big steal, the block shot, the defensive stop, the key basket, all those sort of things that separate championship teams from runner-ups. Yeah, I'll go back to one thing you said. You mentioned Clay Thompson's defense. I thought, you know, one of the things that spurred that drought for Toronto at the start of the third quarter was the was Golden State switching the matchups where they put Thompson on Kawhi Leonard. They moved Draymond Green to Kyle Lowry. And Iguodala to Pascal Siakam, I thought it threw a little bit of a, a wrench in things. Having Thompson guard Leonard one-on-one allowed Green to, to, to maybe roam a little bit more, allowed Iguodala to meet a little roam a little bit more. So they were sort of in the help defense positions, and I think that helped them going forward. So now not having Thompson, if, if that's the case going in Game 3, that obviously affects their matchups and what they can do with, with Green and Iguodala as far as these, that, their defense. And then I guess we can't forget to mention the, the Raptors. I don't know if it was janky, the word that, that Steph Curry used, uh, using the box-in-one defense in the fourth quarter. I doubt we will see that again. I imagine the Warriors will talk about that in practice a little bit. I also uh, imagine that Toronto will be sort of more ready for different defensive matchups going forward. It should be a very interesting game three, no matter who plays. Um we could be. Uh, it's possibly we're gonna we're getting the last two games at Oracle Arena here on Wednesday and Friday. Game three is Wednesday, 9 p.m. again uh, on ABC, and we will come back to you next week with another episode of the Hang Time Podcast to review uh, the next couple of games of this series. Uh, it should be very interesting. Stay tuned, please, to NBA.com and NBA TV for complete coverage of the series, including uh, all the injury updates that you're going to need before game three on Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to hang time on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave a review. We'll talk to you next time.